Welcome to The Vaccination Station, a podcast about vaccines, science, medicine and critical thinking. My name is Dave and today I'm interviewing Dr Anna Zacherson. You can find her on Facebook at Dr Anna's Imaginarium. She also has a website, annazacherson.com. Thank you very much for joining the vaccination station today, Dr. Anna. It's great to have you here. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you perhaps tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Well, that's really difficult because there are some things that are some people find interesting and other people find just really, really dull or even revolting. So uh, let's see if I can find something. One thing that's pretty it's kind of a mixture of dumb and I don't know what, but I get violently seasick and I chose to do a PhD where I spend almost all the time on a boat. Okay. <laughs> and maybe I should, should come over to the next fact that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm active in the fetish BDSM scene here in Berlin. So I'm literally starting to think, was my PhD just a whole weird thing? <laughs> I don't okay. know. Anyway. Well, another one is that I have, I have four degrees and a PhD, and I still thought that Gothenburg was in Scotland until I was 24. And I'm what? Swedish, and Gothenburg is in Sweden. <laughs> what, why did you think it was in Scotland? Because it's called Göteborg in Swedish. And Gothenburg sounded so Scottish to me. So for, oh, I, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I see the connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's me. <laughs> okay. Where did you study? And what are your qualifications? I, from what you've just said now, I understand this could take some time. <laughs> and, and, and a thorough psychological analysis of it. Um, well, I, I studied my, my bachelor and, and MA I got from, from Cambridge University in the UK. Um, how they let me in, I have no clue. No, just kidding. I, I, I got in like everyone else did, uh, except for that my parents aren't rich. Um, and then I uh, went on and did my uh, diploma at Max Planck Institute in, in here in Germany. Um, and I studied I, for, my, for my bachelor and first um, MA. It was uh, very much focused on broad biology because I never really could decide what I wanted to do. And then uh, for for this diploma, which was really a PhD that I started, but then I was run over by a tram, <laughs> and I ended up in the ER and a lot of like metal plates in my head and stuff like that. So I had to reassess my my uh, my life a little bit. Um, but but uh, I, I worked there for two years um, uh, researching plant molecular genetics, and then I. I decided to go to Sweden and do my uh, PhD there. And I did PhL first and then a PhD. Um, and that was really on, on aquatic uh, systems, like uh, marine microbial biology, bacteria uh, and modeling nutrient cycles and stuff. So. Did you say PhL? Yeah. So in Sweden, um, which I think is a kind of a nice system, uh, you have the option halfway through your PhD to write a thesis and defend it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a shit ton of extra work, but um, it's kind of worth it if you, um, there's, there are some people who drop out, you know, and I'd already had this experience of uh, being run over by a tram, uh, life happens, nothing that you have any control over, and then all of these years to waste because you don't get to graduate, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so uh, this is why I decided to take that opportunity and get the 
PhL, which is literally long enough for a PhD in, in some other countries. So, uh, and then I did my, my full PhD then um, a few years after that. Okay. Um, I've heard of the Max Planck Institute. I've got a vague idea of who he was. I think he was a, a German mathematician or, or theoretical physicist, perhaps? The yeah, yeah. Ballpark. The Planck constant that I can't remember. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very well-known institution and it's quite famous worldwide. Yeah, so, um, I, I didn't like it as all there, I must say. Um, yeah, anyway. Moving on. <laughs> so what is your field of expertise? Well, it's a little bit tricky uh, because I am, um, it's very hard for me to define exactly what it is that I'm doing right now. Uh, because I have, uh, for me, it's very clear. I have different uh, foci points and all of them come together. I have, have my own uh, business now. So all of them come together under that roof. But um, when I try to explain what I do for, for people in academia, it can sound very sort of almost distressingly vague. Mm -hmm. um, so I work with green infrastructure right now, green roofs and, and that type of research. But I, I was also head of content marketing at a biotech company for several years. So I, I do a lot of this is uh, also content marketing things, and which is basically communication, science communication. So, um, but um, yeah, so, so that's basically my expertise, a combination of, of, uh, of green, uh, green biology, I should say, and, and science communication. How did you first become interested in science as a career? As a career? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I don't think I ever thought of it as a career. I, it was just sort of something that I wanted to do. I mean, my... My father um, was a scientist and my mother is a medic, um, but it was always there to go out and, and I was always fascinated by plants already as a child. So this is why I opted to really go into, into, um, into the sort of uh, green, green biology part. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it just came with me from, from a child and also coming from a very academic family where everything from business to well, anything that wasn't academia was kind of considered being a failure and not good. Um, so I'm not really sure how much uh, the academic path was um, due to pressure, like unspoken pressures, or you know, if, if that's actually what I chose because I didn't like the academic system at all, but I loved the science. So, which, you know, it, it took many years and a lot of work for me to understand that I could actually take the science and do my own stuff with it outside of academia and uh yeah so that's what i did basically so the rather than science being your career science sort of gave you career options so yeah exactly exactly but it took took a while for me to recognize them because i <clears throat> that's one thing i think is very um sad about the academic system that you're not really taught to look outside of academia it's kind of sort of yeah, it, it's, um, it's still having this kind of Victorian idea of that you have this straight path through academia and then you get tenure and then all life is good and, and then, yeah, you're set. But that's not what life looks like for academics today. It is absolutely not what life looks like. So um, there are hardly any tenure positions here in Germany. It's, I, I think, as a, as a single mom, 
I think I calculated my chances of like 0.1% or something like that, stupidly low. So it was just like exit before you spend too much time in the system. Um, and that is with, with a heavy heart, I say that, but uh, it's just a matter of fact nowadays. There is, uh, this is a slight digression, but it, it's something that gets talked about a lot. There is a concept called publish or perish in academia. And some yeah. people believe it places undue strain on academics. Can you elaborate on what that means and perhaps give us some of your experience um, of that? Oh, it's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> yeah, it's basically something that I think is destroying the whole system. So in order to have a career in academia and in order to get a position and in order to climb the academic ladder, you need to publish. That is basically the currency. Now, this is also being used by a lot of companies because they know they can pay the academics in basically zero money and just offer them, well, you get to publish something. <laughs> so they, they, get, they use the system as well, which is financed by tech money and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've been on the other side of that fan, so I know how it works. Um, and um, what I think is also not, is not only is it putting an extreme pressure on, on the scientists to publish but I think it also uh, leads to scientists publish things that might not be ready for publication yet. And this could uh, uh, basically, I think, uh, what would be the right word? Not destroy might not might be a too, uh, too heavy word, but it damages science as a whole. If you have a lot of things that are not ready for publication and they are being published. And uh, maybe, uh, yeah, sensationalist things become published. I mean, it's the whole, uh, the whole system basically is is um, is damaged by this. And I think it's a very very serious topic. The whole publication thing in in, in, uh, in academia is a serious topic. Do you have an analogy that would help me uh, to understand your work? Oh, that is really, really tricky um, because I do so many different things. Um, uh, I, I was thinking like, you know, an, an analogy, I don't know. It, it, uh, sometimes I feel like you know, a confused penguin, you know, trying to get like a, <laughs> a running around just doing all sorts of stuff. But um, it's really tricky. I mean, I do, I do the, the, uh, the communication stuff. I, I see myself more as an enabler uh, for for others or like a, a contact person. I, I I think I wrote somewhere on my LinkedIn. I see myself as the a, a link between the academic world and the business world somehow. Um, yeah, I think bad an analogy, but but uh, that's probably as as far as I can explain that. I, I remember reading, I think, on your website that one of the things you like most is encountering an audience that is largely unfamiliar with science and being able mm. to provide that breakthrough moment for them. Yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's really, really fun, uh, and especially when you see, um, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm not really super great with kids. I have kids, but I, I'm not. I'm not super great with uh, with teaching kids. So, so, so that that's not really working out for me really great. Um, and also preaching to the choir of people who already know science or who are already interested in science. It's also like there are probably other people who do that better than I do. Um, but 
because maybe I'm a little bit an unconventional personality, maybe in the academic world, um, maybe I have some sort of, sort of niche where people actually might relate to me, maybe listen to me, at least my target group. I mean, there's a lot of people who, who send me death threats as well, <laughs> but, but, uh, but there appears to be some sort of target group that, that, uh, that I don't know, I, I'm able to reach. And I think for me personally, that is actually the most fun when people actually maybe I've had like a lecture or performance or something like that. And after people write to me and ask for book tips, I mean, that's really cool because that means that they want to start learning and they, they do it from, from their own, like from their own perspective and not just because somebody has imposed it on them. Yeah. That's nice. What excites you about your work? I think that I'm, I work free now. Uh, nobody, can tell me what to do. Of course, I need to make sure that I get food on my table and can pay my rent and stuff like that. But uh, I, I'm free. And I get to work on the big societal issues that I was dreaming on, dreaming of working on when I actually started studying biology before I got into the academic system and before I realized the whole system was just about publication and career climbing and not really about the bigger picture and actually do, making a change. There are institutions that make huge change, so I'm not like pulling them down. It's just my, my personal experience. My PhD was also a fantastic place. Um, fantastic place. Uh, it was a, I did my PhD in, in a good place that um, I felt had real, real world impact as well. But I think that I'm really much an applied scientist and, and be able to, to work on these big societal topics, see an effect on my work and actually seeing things being built in front of my eyes uh, and also work free. I think that's what I love about my work. That is really, really nice. What are the best and worst aspects of working in your field? Hmm. I think the best aspect is to change people's minds. To um, I do a lot of green lobbyism as well. So um, I think what I find most gratifying is actually getting politicians who have decision over funds, etc., uh, to get them to change their mind and understand the importance of, of uh, making certain um, decisions for, for uh, basically our future lives on this planet. Um, that I like a lot, I think. Yeah. And any negatives? Negatives. Um, stubborn, old-fashioned business boomers. <laughs> Well, this, um, that's a, a really helpful answer because it, it leads into my next two questions. Firstly, why is your research and, and your ongoing work important? And what are the real world applications? Um, well, right now um, I have these two things. It's partly I have my, my social media platform and the Dr. Anna's Imaginarium where um, I try to communicate science a little bit broader topics. It's not just focused on, on green infrastructure or, or ecological stuff. It's just general like skeptical thinking and, and critical thinking, etc. Um, and then I have my, my sort of core business where, where I basically get my, my, my food paid from, uh, which is the, the green infrastructure um, research and, and consulting. 
And it's basically what we've been focusing on is um, we have been setting up a very, very unique lab in, in the US. And uh, so the aim has been to produce data that's basically been lacking in the sort of green roof, green, uh, green roof industry. So there's been a lot of kind of unsubstantiated claims of how these roofs work, the functionality, et cetera, et cetera. So we're basically producing a lot of data and we're building a lot of online tools so that end users can actually really quickly check if these claims could, could even be true. And, and this basically protects the user. And if the user is protected and these systems work, is a much higher chance that they actually will spread and that you know we actually see a real world like a, a pro proper change and the main focus right now has been on stormwater management so we know with the climate models that life is going to get difficult in in many urban areas they're going to heat up a lot um due to this urban heat island effects and also the changing climate but there's also going to be a lot of uh, more flooding events dry periods and then flooding events so uh, most of the, um, and also people are moving into the cities massively. So um, we're gonna have some interesting times ahead if we don't prepare the cities for, for, for this. And, and green infrastructure is a kind of clever way to, to deal with this because you can both take care of the stormwater and you cool the city and you improve the buildings, energy use, et cetera, et cetera. So, and biodiversity and whatnot. But in order to, to, to be able to, to, do, to make these changes and actually in, make sure there's policy and making sure there's an ROI and stuff like, we need to make sure that there's actually actual data because otherwise it's just another bullshit fix, greenwashing. So that's basically what we do. So we've touched on this slightly uh, already, but how did you get into science communication? What really motivated you to take that step? Uh, well, I think in the beginning, it was actually vaccinations that I, uh, even though I don't really have my scientific background in vaccinations, but um, I mean, personally, I thought it was just so insane to see this wonderful tool that is saving so many lives um, being completely uh, disregarded as something evil or etc. And of course, you know, there are nuances here, you know, people with autoimmune diseases or cancer treatments or, you know, I don't know what not. But, but in general, vaccinations are exactly there to save these people as well, the people who can't get vaccinated as well. So um, I got pissed off. <laughs> And I, but I felt also, so what use is vaccination science if most part of the population decides to not to vaccinate? And often they watch some stupid YouTube video, like with a white middle-aged tantric yogi, um, you know, telling them the vaccinations are bad, etc. And um, so I figured that, you know, the research is only half of the work. Um, it needs to be communicated as well. And it's so critical that we are able to communicate these topics. Um, because of public health, um, you know, how money is allocated, how research funds are allocated. <clears throat> and, and I think in the end, it's just really super critical for our democracy. I mean, if, if people, people don't understand these things, um, how on earth will, should they be able to vote on them or understand the public health impacts and et cetera? So, yeah, so that's basically the, the main reason for that. <clears throat> well, I, I can definitely uh, relate to that anyway. Speaking you know, from the vaccination station. So, how has social media affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas? 
Well, um, in the beginning, I fell flat on my face a lot of times because I went in with this typical academic arrogance of going like, well, you know, marketing is just some dirty old thing people do. Like, you know, it's just, of course, I have a PhD, so I'll be able to do this, no problem. Um, until I realized I couldn't. <laughs> and, um, and I realized, you know, it wasn't just something you can just sit down and just do. Uh, you do actually have to do some reading and you have to understand a few things. And there, there is actually a field called communication science. It is, uh, this is, you know, what uh, propaganda machines, uh, politicians and everything run on. So there's a lot of data on this, how, how people react to communication. And I started finding this very, very interesting. And how then this social media has affected uh, my, my style of communication. I think that I, I realized, started to realize a little bit more how I needed to, I don't know, uh, that, that I needed to be a bit more genuine. I couldn't have that sort of cold, neutral, factual way of communicating like most academics. I mean, if, if I would stand up and do one of my performance lectures in front of an academic audience at a research institute, they would go like, you know, what the fuck is going on? It's like, you know, and, and of course, this is also part of communication. You have to know when and where you can do different things. So, um, but, but yeah, so, 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 so depends on who your target group is, et cetera, of course. But uh, yeah, I, th I think the social media really taught me a lot on, on also how to communicate also on stage, I think. There's a, a long-standing complaint in the scientific community that reporters are absolutely hopeless at communicating what scientists have actually told them. Can you speak on that issue? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think it's also the journalist thinking like, you know, Jesus fucking Christ, does he have to speak about this for half an hour? I'm going to write a blurb that is 500 words long. I can't include all of that. And then a, a, a little note there that in special circumstances, this A, B, C, and Q, uh, we have special, like, it doesn't work like that. So when scientists say that the journalists are really crappy at, at, at telling the story, it can also be that the scientist was really, really bad in telling the story. And, and you know, more than often, I think that that is actually the case. So um, they often say, well, um, they, they have a hard time sometimes just pulling out the sort of main message uh, and, and understanding how that will appear to the general public. I'm not saying that science journalists are great nowadays because they are literally not. Most of the time they're so underpaid and overworked. They have five minutes to write things. I mean, they're not five minutes, but they have so little time to write stuff. So, so I think this is a very complex problem. And pointing fingers at one direction, I think, is uh, just not uh, fair. Your Facebook page has more than 75,000 followers. You also have a YouTube channel and a professional website. So how do you manage an online presence of that size? Well, um, I think because of my background in content marketing as well, I think I have a pretty streamlined approach to this and I make sure that, you know, I, I uh, post things on my different channels. I also have this Discord server, etc. Um, but I have a lot of help from a few like fantastic people as well, especially in my groups. 
uh, my Facebook groups. Um, particularly, I would like to mention Brian, Paul, and, and Joa. They, they helped me uh, a lot with this. Um, and also the fact is that this, is, this started out as a hobby project and, and I'm not actually making any direct money from my sort of social media presence. I don't sell anything. I don't do anything like that. It's more kind of a business card of, of uh, what I do. And if I had this as my main profession, the page would probably look very different. It would probably be much more professionally done and stuff like that. And it would probably be about four times the size right now. And now I have a very, very small time allocated each day where I can actually do things and, and sometimes if I post something that people start arguing about, it takes a little bit more time because I need to moderate and stuff like that. But it's, you know, at times, you know, when I've been trying to answer every question, I've been trying to answer every message and stuff like that. And I, I started to learn to prioritize as well. And, and one prioritization is that if people write to me and demand answers, um, this happened it's almost virtually only for men. Um, they write to me and saying like, you know, almost like, uh, you wrote this and now you have five minutes to answer me. And I'm like, dude, no, <laughs> that's not how these things work. Um, and also you can actually, if you have something to say, you can also say it in, in the forum so that other people can come in and join the discussion, etc. Women tend to, to more sort of like threaten me if, if they're pissed off. So, which is it's kind of fun because you think you'd be the other way around, but it's not. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 th I think I'm getting like my, firstly, my skin is very, very thick now. It takes a lot to even make me twitch when it comes to, to online things. I think the only thing that can really make me sweat is when I posted something and being cocky about it and then realized that I was wrong. It's <laughs> like, that is probably the nastiest thing. And then I'm like, oh no, God, I can't, I can't believe it. But I've been trying to have this sort of like, we call it doing, make, doing a poodle in Sweden. It's basically when you, when, you, uh, when you just like lay on your back and just go like, oh guys, I fucked up. This is the right kind of information. Sorry about that. And I tried to make another post about, about uh, that I fucked up. Because I, fi I find that firstly, it's the most honest thing to do. And secondly, um, uh, yeah, I, oh, yeah I, there I still have the academic scientists in me. I, I, can't, I can't let that go. <laughs> Your website says that you offer performative science lectures. What mm -hmm. is a performative science lecture? And how might an audience benefit from it uh, as opposed to a traditional lecture? Well, um, I think a performance lecture can be very, very, like, can be very many, many things. Um, what I've been doing is that I've been, I've been do, make, doing a few lectures at tattoo conventions where um, I've been weaving in a lot of poetry as well and, you know, have I've had videos going behind me, so it's becoming more kind of a performative um, flair to it. But we also did a an opera. Uh, my husband is an opera singer, and uh, we actually started the whole opera with a performance, like a, a, a kind of a scientific lecture that that was woven into the um, the sort of main performance, and then it. it where, where where I was also taking part, like kind of passive part, but still like I was on stage. And then it en ended also with a yeah, fakir um, element where <clears throat> we also had built 
microphones to take up the, the sounds of my husband's muscles as they contracted as he was um, uh, he's doing doing a, a body suspension hook suspension up and he was singing basically opera to the this was the end of the whole opera and then he was singing a, a kind of a duet with the own with the sounds from his own muscle contractions the know, hook suspension is basically when you have basically meat hooks under the skin and you pull somebody up in it right and we knew that this was going to be the end of it and and kind of an unconventional opera and it was an opera festival and we walked out on stage in the beginning and we see only gray heads and i'm like oh, fuck did we do <laughs> but we got standing ovations at the end wow. so um, yeah it worked out <laughs> so you've mentioned your consultation work before what was the precise nature of your role in in that work so um one part is uh green roof research is connected to the lab in the us and and a few other things here in europe um so um we've been looking at hydrology most of the time uh up until now i'm not a hydrologist but i work with hydrologists and um we look also at nutrient runoff, which is more kind of my, my area of expertise. And then um, I work very much with getting that information and communicate that to politicians, decision makers, stakeholders, and etc. here in, in the EU. So that's kind of my lobbyist work. It's for, it's for green roof diagnostics, it's called in the US. And um, then, I, then I have some other um, minor consulting things for um, it's a company called Purple Roof, uh, which is um, basically used some of our research and developed a, uh, as a special type of, uh, of green roof. Um, and for them, I'm writing a lot of uh, content uh, on their blog. And um, yeah, for Green Roof Diagnostics, I've also written some, some white papers that uh, will be published soon as well. So that's, uh, that's basically the main, main part of that, uh, that consulting. Um, basically we live today in an age of unprecedented knowledge and easy access to reliable information but there's a lot of anti-scientific trends still pervading society uh, there's climate change denialism anti-vax sentiment and all the rest of that and in some quarters this sentiment is definitely growing what do you think could be causing that it seems quite paradoxical that a, at a point in human civilization, where we've never been so advanced, there's actually a rise of anti-science thinking. Mm, I think it's a very, very <clears throat> complex cause for this. Um, just gonna pick, just cherry picking a few of what comes into my mind. One thing that I see is that what who previously was just the sort of village nutter. Uh, he now finds pages on Facebook with tens or even hundreds of thousands <clears throat> of members saying the world is flat, vaccines are bad, or etc, etc. And, uh, and so, of course, ten, there can't be 10,000 nutters <laughs> or 100,000 nutters, he thinks, which is not completely correct because it can on a global scale. Um, but it gives you a feeling of, um, I am in a community, um, they are they are correct because we are so many and then uh, these conversations they basically feed into this 
and solidifies these ideas and thoughts. And it, it's a strong comorbidity, I like to use that word, from one of these uh, conspiracy theory uh, ideas to the others. So you often find that somebody might go into like, okay, I'm a bit of a vaccine skeptic, and then they became an anti-vaccine person. And then like four years down the drain, which I've seen happening actually with a, an acquaintance of mine last week. When I, left, when I left Sweden, this person was kind of normal. And now it's like the fluoride kills us, the chemtrail kills us, the vaccines kills us, and still the population of the world is growing. So I don't really understand <laughs> how he comes to this conclusion. But, but, but it's, it seems to be like uh, when you get into this way of thinking, um, it doesn't really matter what the target of your thinking is. It's a way of thinking. The same way as, as a skeptical thinking or critical mindset is a way of thinking and it has to be taught, it has to be learned. And the same way as this conspiracy thinking, I think that is an, unfortunately very much easier to learn because you don't actually have to think very much. You can just sort of, you just accept that everything is a conspiracy and then you can find, it's a bit like <clears throat> just taking a, you know, somebody shoots with a shotgun at the, at, the, at the wall and for some reason I can make sure, I can make a uh, hippopotamus by drawing lines between the, 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 the holes or something like that. Um, it's kind of a different, uh, different level of work it takes to, to, to go into that mindset than, than a scientific or skeptical thinking mindset. So, uh, yeah, I think there's, there are many reasons, but I think this is just maybe one from, from my perspective. I'm absolutely not saying that this is the only reason, but, but that's, that's the main one from, that I see around. You've made a very good point, actually, about the contribution of social media to this problem, because the way the algorithms tend to work is, of course, that they're intended to follow your interests and feed you more information and suggest more pages and more people with, with common interests. Mm. But what ends up happening, of course, is that over time, this simply develops into a kind of ideological bubble. And once mm -hmm. you're in that bubble, all you're ever going to see is more of that stuff because that's what the algorithm is feeding you. And you start to believe that your bubble is actually bigger than it is and that mm -hmm. this is actually more real than it really is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's also what, very important to remember also on, on say, Facebook um, that the whole algorithm is built to to uh around upset so um if you have a post that basically makes people upset uh, or generating some sort of like strong reaction people are likely to comment and if people comment the algorithm would shoot it up on top and spread it to more people so uh, this is why you find also a lot, lot of the science pages going that way as well, just posting things that is like, yeah, it's, it's very one-sided arguments because they know people are going to get upset and they're going to start arguing and bickering uh, for things that might not have been even necessary to even bicker about because the whole first argument put forward was just stupid. So, but that's how the algorithm works. And if you want a page that grows fast, that's how you have to do. And, in response to criticism uh, from science and say from the medical community, a lot of people will say, 
Well, if someone wants to use homeopathy or chiropractic or some other form of alternative medicine, why not just leave them to it? Because they're not really hurting anyone. So why not just let this stuff run alongside medical science and, and science-based medicine? And it's, it's just going to be fine. The two can coexist. How would you respond to that? Yes and no. <laughs> Firstly, they are hurting people. Um, have, you, have you ever heard of homeopaths um, without borders? So went down to Africa, gave a lot of HIV positive people homeopathic sugar pills. And well, you can guess what happened. So, uh, okay, extreme, extreme case, but you know, uh, these things happen also here in, in, in Germany where I am or in Australia where you are, <clears throat> that people actually claim to cure certain illnesses. People stop taking their chemotherapy uh, or, or whatever. So yes, they are hurting people and that's the point. But, and here, here, here it comes, I understand why you can go sometimes to a, a chiropractor or homeopath or whatever, whatnot you, you decide to go to if you have certain conditions. Now, I live with several chronic illnesses and uh, I will go through the fucking roof if somebody tells me, oh, come here, I'm going to cure your endometriosis or your autoimmune disease. Uh, not a problem. Uh, you know, just give me 300 euros and we'll do that. And I literally had medical doctors sending me off, off to Chinese medicine quacks that were going to charge a student 300 euros a month for a treatment for, for a pain condition that I wasn't even diagnosed for and, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, it's, it's highly moral, particularly because I made 500 euros a month, but I was in so much pain that I could hardly work which meant that, you know, I was almost taking out a loan somehow in order to, pay, you know, and even though I knew it wouldn't work, but if you're in enough pain or fatigue, or if you are in a, in a situation where it's just so vulnerable, it's like, it's not so strange that you might go these directions, right? What I don't have a problem with, for example, I don't have a problem with, you know, I've had a, a friend uh, coming over here, helping me out with, with, with a few things. I don't even know what she calls it, but it's a relaxing time for me. It gives me an opportunity to start like maybe thinking a little bit about my body parts and things like that and putting a little bit of a mental different perspective on my illness, which makes my everyday life a little bit easier, right? Do I have a problem with that? Zero. Now, does she claim to cure me? No. <laughs> I, um, I, I don't know if it's like proven to work or whatever, but that's not really my point. My point is that if I can get some relief from it, psychological or whatever, whatnot, um, I'm going to give myself that. So, so, so this, is, this is where I think that they can coexist, but that requires honesty. And it requires um, a very clear communication what these things actually are. Now, I have a, a mind that can, I can suggest to my brain a lot of things and I start, you know, feeling them or whatever. So I can actually go into some sort of mind space where I temporarily convince myself that it's completely going to work. Now, if, if, if I, can, I can switch it off in a heartbeat like that, but I can get into that mindset and I think that mindset has basically been developed in me 
as a protection mechanism, a psychological protection mechanism in order to actually be able to live with chronic pain the way I have done. So I think, it, I think it's very complex, but, but the moment we start lying about things or misrepresenting things, that's when you, when you lose me completely. I really like the nuanced nature of, of that response because I, I think the average doctor would say, you know, yes, there's a legitimate role for the placebo effect in, in daily life. And some of us probably, you know, not necessarily rely on it, but uh, participated in it without even knowing sometimes. And that's, yeah. that's not an issue. The issue is where the placebo effect is presented as something that it is not and someone also starts to monetize it and, exactly. and tries to convince other people that, you know, this is the one thing that will sort of cure everything. And yeah. that, of course, is, is where the unscientific thinking creeps in. Mm -hmm. um, I have two autoimmune diseases myself. I have ankylosing spondylitis and ulcerative colitis. And both mm -hmm. of those can be quite excruciatingly painful in, yeah. in their own unique mm -hmm. ways. I'm very fortunate that science has developed some excellent medications for both of those conditions. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've never felt the need to be sort of tempted to, to anything alternative, but I do understand and appreciate that someone in a desperate situation faced with say a life threatening disease where their options are limited, whether through economic factors or, or simply um, lack of access to, to good healthcare, they could very easily be tempted or persuaded that an alternative measure is actually the better way ahead. Mm, yeah, and, and it is funny, they, they come creeping like vultures as well. Um, if, if they even get a, a hunt, hint that you know you have some sort of chronic illness, it's, uh, and, and, and then, but also like in, in there, and this is where, where it gets, gets interesting as well, they often believe what they say as well. It's not that, you know, I, I don't think that most of the time they're even lying. They really believe it, but also the fact is that they might have bought themselves into an expensive uh, education around like homeopathy or whatever, and then they've chosen that path, they built a business around it. So for me to tell them, you know what, your entire structure and your entire base, financial base, and everything you do is a bunch of bullshit, of course they're going to get pissed off. So, so I think it's, it's, it's very important also when we take things like this down, it's important how we communicate as well, because otherwise you're just going to create like a, a, a cell of really super angry people that, you know, and, and it becomes even more closed in door, like conspiracy thinking and, and, and anti-science. So I think just not being arrogant is kind of a good start. My last question is uh, actually quite topical. There's a lot of talk today about the politicization of science. Mm -hmm. And some commentators have argued that science has always been political, whether we like it or not, because it has implications for public policy. I mean, that, that's a, a whole different discussion that would take a, you know, more time than we have to unpack. But just in brief, what are your thoughts on the relationship between politics and science? Uh, I think science is highly political from the point where funds are allocated to the ways the results are implemented in society and, and, and beyond that. 
So like even basic research that has no apparent direct application is political because how it got funded. And, and I think that um, I see uh, some of my colleagues that, you know, that hide behind this whole science is not political um, mindset, Victorian kind of mindset, uh, I think it's naive at best and extremely dangerous at its worst. And I think um, scientists need to learn to start speaking up and take responsibility for this. And because the thing is, Everyone else is speaking up. So the only thing that will happen by sitting there shoving your, shoving your head into the sand like a, a, an ostrich is it, just, it's just, it's just silencing the whole scientific community. We just, everything, the only thing that will happen is that we lose a voice. That's all that's gonna happen. So it's just some sort of, like, I don't know what the fuck they think they're doing because it's just some dumb virtue signaling to the rest of the scientific community or, or what? You know, it's, it's, of course, it's political. I mean, just look at democracy and science and how science funding is being shut down, etc., etc. You know, they, they still live in this idea of this academic system also being completely what it was like 30, 40 years ago or something that you had this career path. It's like, there is no career path anymore. It's gone. So, you know, and we have this, the publication system is crumbling. You know, and if, if you can't even look at your own house and see the whole shit fucking thing is falling down, you know, if you're just going to sit there, well, you know, um, it's, it's not my thing to talk about this. It's, 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 it's frankly extremely upsetting, I think. Sorry for having a bit of an end run there, but this is something I, that really, really upsets me, actually. <laughs> it comes through quite clearly. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Cuss words. <laughs> Um, look, this has just been a really wonderful experience and, and a great opportunity to talk directly to someone who not only knows what they're doing and, and uh, does it very well, but also was able to communicate very well. I remember when I first came across your Facebook page and I was really quite struck by the way the public conception of a scientist has changed from what used to be the traditional white lab coat stereotype to now has, has actually branched out a lot more. Ever since scientists became more visible and more vocal in media, people have begun to see scientists well, as human beings, really. And I think that has opened up to such a, a wide range of possibilities for education and for public knowledge and for a better relationship between scientists and society. So I, I, I want to thank you so much for contributing to that. Yours, yours is certainly one of the more engaging scientific communication pages out there. I'm intending to interview quite a few others, uh, doctors, scientists and, and debunkers and uh, go through a similar discussion with them. But for now, thank you very much, Dr. Anna. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great to be on, on the show.